Dr. Kuntz, I want to start off by giving you a chance to respond to kind of what I feel is a variety of feedback from our Musk episode, positive and negative. And as much as I, you know, I don't think we need to say this is why we did it. Like, like we talked about him for the reasons we talked about him. Mm-hmm. But then this week the guy goes and and really did something pretty stellar, pretty out of the box for what you expect from a modern famous person, which is, <laughs> he did it on several levels. I mean, he, he dropped some F-bombs in a very public forum with an interviewer who was at pains to expose his, his anti-Semitism and show him for the great evil man that he is so that, you know, Twitter will repent. But what, you know, in, in all of the five minutes segment that you can find anywhere, you know, the part that jumped out to me is this echo of Isaiah, where he complains about the Israelites who in their greed have changed the way they use the scales and are now not only twisting their money, but twisting everything about life, calling evil good and calling good evil. And uh, Elon didn't quote that at all. And I wouldn't suggest he did, but he certainly said that like, if you try to look good, but you act evil, I don't like you. And my entire financial wealth exists to actually make you not exist in our society, <laughs> you know, or, or to, to disrupt your power base because I don't, I'd let him defend himself a little bit here, but he seems to believe in a better world through democracy. So all of that, not to say Fisk is saying, see how great he is. No, 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 no. It's just see how interesting he is. What a strange man. Any thoughts are welcome. When you're thinking about a figure like Musk and this echoes some of the things that that at least I also said about Melee last week or two weeks ago, depending on when this drops. You want to kind of zoom out and think about what is going on in a longer term way underneath that individual person's effort, because one of the commonalities of a society in obvious decline is the growth of enormous personalities that promise to rescue that society from decline. And the things that make for long-term growth and stability are not necessarily the same things that said personalities are going to possess. So this is something that both on the Monday show and the Thursday show in various ways over the next several months, we're going to talk about the, the growth of technological innovation and the technologies, not just the personalities around them, like what was Edison like or what was Marconi like, but what were the technologies that undergird us and how are those even capable of being sustained, let alone furthered? And we're going to do that in a broader way on Thursdays, partly because Pastor Fisk likes to go very broad and Pastor Grills likes very specific technical details. So on Mondays, we're going to focus on flight and space flight. And on Thursdays, we'll go, we'll go broader with the help of a guy named Vaclav Smeal. And we'll explain all that. The reason that I'm doing that is because my contention about a figure like Musk is that he is more of a personality 
than he is ultimately an innovator and that we are still even technologically, let's say with research into lithium ion batteries for his automotive endeavors, or the way that he's launching rockets has in fact been tried before by the Russians and, and is in fact standard in Russian space launches from the beginning, that we are we are all being, or our greatest figures, our, our most daring figures, our most public figures, our most independent figures, which is what money obtains you in a democracy. It gives you the kind of independence that in a different form of government you would have because you are an aristocrat or because you are whatever, uh, you know, gives you a freedom of speech and of movement that normal people don't have. Here is somebody like that. What is he saying? He's saying that, you know, things are crooked and I will withstand you. That's, I think that's fascinating. And in, and in a way, I think it's great, right? You know, deal book is, which is what that forum was. Deal book is sort of the New York Times's attempt to upstage the Wall Street Journal and the Financial Times. So he was actually talking with and to people who matter in our completely market-dominated society. And he's saying that he will withstand them. I, in a way, I think that's great. In another way, there is a hollowness to all of this that I see because we are trying to, we're, we're merely trying, and if Musk succeeds, at something like Starlink long-term, we are maintaining systems. That's what we're capable of doing. The fact is that in many realms of technological endeavor, that's the best we can do, that we have giant gaps between what was developed in the mid 20th century and what we're capable on a human level of even maintaining right now. And that's something that carries all the way from like the electrical grid to things that seem very advanced. So it's not yeah. that I'm, and, and you, I, you know what I'm I saying? Think has, yeah, I do. I think you're spot on all the way. And I was just going to add, I think it has everything to do with physics and a principle of science that is missing, namely creation <laughs> yeah. being part of it. So advertising being not a first principle will be one of the other kind of natural law thoughts I took from the five minutes that Elon threw out there. He was very clear that he believes that a company, which I think for Christians, we should understand ourselves as tribes. Companies are a form of tribe. For a company to survive, it only needs to make a good product. Yeah. It doesn't need to sell it to you. In fact, those who need to sell it to you aren't making a good product. They're needing you to continue to believe in them and they must swindle you. And that idea as counter to the market that he was talking to, the, the right. elite that he was talking yeah. to, right. that's that's some bold love right there. And I, I like it. I eat that stuff up. So again, I, fascinating. You, you said it's just a fascinating thing. I mean, how can you not enjoy the TV? <laughs> I, I, I think there's also something and, and what Musk it was saying about products and sales there is really the Henry Ford approach to selling automobiles, which is I'm going to build it. It's going to last forever. And that's why you'll like it because it's reliable, not because I sold it to you necessarily, is that we are dealing with a situation where that attitude in almost any industry is unusual. And it, when I say industry, maybe I should have said vocation or something. 
part of the reason that I went into the ministry was because some certain other things that were open to me, people said, you should think about doing this with your life or whatever. They seemed to me negatively, you could say they were parasitic. <laughs> A little more neutrally, you could say they were derivative activities. So if I'm dealing directly with eternal souls, with the things that feed them, I thought that's worthwhile doing. I don't want to do something else that involves perhaps many of the same skills that is parasitic of it on eternal souls that relies on their gullibility or that relies on their incapacity to read the fine print or that relies on their tendency towards stupidity, which are all things that if you get deeply enough into many professions that have to do with human beings, their behaviors, the words that motivate them or depress them or whatever, you're going to find people are very open about that, right? <laughs> you're going to rely on the fact that, I mean, Charlie Munger, who just died, said, basically, we rely on the fact that other people are stupid to make the investment decisions that we do that made him and Warren Buffett billionaires. So I think when you're thinking about technology, which is really what sustains this particular form of civilization that we have, in the same way that dynastic monarchy sustained a, the civilization that existed alongside rising technocracy and democracy in 19th century Europe and was basically eclipsed in the fires of World War I. That was sustained by dynasties being upright and carefully selecting for new marriage partners and having children and all this kind of thing. We're not sustained by those things anymore. We're not sustained by families. We are sustained by technological functioning. That's how all of this works. And if it goes down, or if it slowly declines, or if it rapidly disappears, then also our form of society, our form of organization, our way of life to which we are all accustomed, even if we're complete strangers to each other, which increasingly in the United States and Europe, we are. We don't speak the same languages. We don't know each other. If the technological stuff goes away, everything is, I mean, I mean, ab absolutely everything is up for grabs. Cutthroat, cutthroat. I want to go back to this really powerful stuff. And I agree completely. I want to go back to your, your, any thought about great men of our time okay. being great, great borrowers <laughs> that Elon, you say is not uh, inventive, which is like, the very thing most people would laud him for, right? And I, I'm going to agree with their laud for what it's worth, and I'm going to totally see your point and agree with you too. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, and it's 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 a comment. Your point's a comment on our age, not yeah, Elon, right? right? It's that right. we don't have the capacity to invent as a virtue, yeah, and therefore we don't see it. Or if it is seen right now, it's hidden and it's hidden pretty deep so that the most inventive guy in the whole world who may know about all the problems for why he can't come up with new ideas because of physics and maybe even God, I, I don't know what he's pondering, yeah, yeah, right? right. Um, but but he, he probably knows like we are not able to come up with really new things. We are borrowers all and the, the beauty, the beauty of the word borrower in the managerial age, dependent on the finances as we've become, where debt is wealth and blah, blah, blah. Uh, what a thing. What a thing that the greatest men are borrowers all from Buffett to to Musk. Um, can I then shift us? If you want to say something to that? We can, we can just, shift to that. Just one thing. And this is that these ideas I first came into contact with through 
the guys who would be called the Wawatosa theologians, if you want to think about this theologically, and then their intellectual heirs ended up in the Protestant Conference, which is sort of rapidly going away as an organization. Yeah. Yeah. But if you pick up this book by Hensel about the hardening of Israel and, and, and of Christ Church, you want to work with this concept, which I find very productive. And the, I'll give you the German word, not for pretentiousness sake, but for the sake of it doesn't really exist in English. And it's Geistesstarre, and I, I've used it before, and it means Geist in German means not just it sounds sort of like ghost, it means spirit, but it also means mind. And this will kind of transition. Oh, I didn't know that and, connection. Okay. Yeah, wow. it, also, it also means mind, and Starre is like, like when your neck is stiff in the morning and you have to stretch huh. it out or something. And oh, I like stiff. Stiff ghost. That's good. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Stiff ghost. And what happens here is that is not that certain things that you can still measure for and will obviously exist among human groups will, of course, continue existing, such as you could say, oh, but Elon is so smart or he understands rhetoric so well or whatever it is that you want to say about any given human being. Yes, they will still have certain human qualities. The insight is that under conditions of hardening, which is what God gives up destructive, idolatrous civilizations to, or peoples, or however you want to think about the group. I, I say civilization because we are a we are a multinational nation state in the United States. And that's characteristic think, of Yeah. The word you know peoples is good. Yeah. The word peoples is good as a biblical one. I mean, I think tribe is also helpful as a biblical one. You have to have the word be able to work on the macro and the micro. And that's yeah. the challenge. Yeah. Right. But that what's happening in such a civilizational context is that is not that there aren't smart people or that there aren't capable people. It it may be that they're in the wrong spots, but it it will definitely be the case that they lose capacity as a matter of God's judgment to do the things that would preserve their own civilization. So they are they are abandoned to blindness, right? And you can you can think about for the sake of a well-known story, you can think about Pharaoh and his army charging into the gateway made only for God's people to make it through the Red Sea and being engulfed. If you know a little bit more about other parts of Old Testament history, such as what happened to the Babylonians or what happened to the Persians, then you understand their eclipse as various judgments of God worked out on idolatry. So that what we're dealing with is not, and I don't think of this as fatalistic because obviously God keeps for himself always a remnant and that remnant will not be defined by hardening. So this is not saying that everyone is hardened, everything is futile, just give up now. But this is to say that it will be characteristic in such a time or in such a place for people to have a, a fixity of mind or a fixity of, of spirit that is incapable of doing the things that would actually sustain and, and grow in a productive way, not an unnatural sort of usurious way, but a productive way, the things that make for life lived well. And that that's why it's not so much that I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm dour about every media personality, whatever he says or that they're all feds or whatever form of cynicism you want to have, but that I am skeptical about human capacities under the general conditions of idolatry in which we all operate. 
So the remnant is ever present and never, never hardening. That's a real one to hold on to. Um, how about we define idolatry then? Idolatry on this scale is not the particular personal sin to which everyone is prone through concupiscence. Idolatry is the mass reality of having exchanged as a society the worship of the living God for the worship of other things. So this is everything from the exchange in the West of public acknowledgement of Christianity for public acknowledgement of lots of other things, usually, as we've talked about many times, not explicitly calling themselves religious. But it's also the fact that obviously other things of religious weight are promulgated as necessary for getting a job, for keeping a job, are going to be necessary in your children's education unless you opt out and pay a higher price in various ways to educate your children otherwise that what is normal and normative is opposed to the living God. That's idolatry in a collective sense. Right. So collective, that's good. I like that word better than corporate. Collective idolatry is the non-personal mass reality of exchanging the worship of the creature with the worship of the creator as a public and it's hardening unto fire, which it always, always does. And then I would yeah. suggest then our definition of that on the more micro level would be more or less the same thing just applied to whatever, what did you call vocation earlier? That was really good. Whatever industry, industry. you're actually taking up, you know, um, I think that's, that's <laughs> yeah. pretty, pretty useful there. Um, so speaking of industries, I know I can say yeah. yes now there's yeah. an industry out there called psycho therapy there's one connected to it called psychology i'm i'm a long student of this i first got my chance to learn about these things when i was about seven years old and i'll tell you that story if you ever want to ask but uh we got a question about psycho stuff and otherwise and some some <laughs> practice right psycho stuff yeah yeah mm -hmm. and um and so I think I'll get my chance to chime in okay. as, as we go. But, yeah, let's go uh, for it. Here we go, an anonymous question, but signed, an internet-raised millennial. And uh, I like that I like that handle, poster. Yeah, I can't even fathom it. I don't even know what that would be like. It's <laughs> you know, raised on cable TV was the only way I, I, I thought everyone was doing it. But I, it, it turned out the world's weird. Here we go. He says, I wanted, she maybe, I wanted to get your opinion on a question that has been on my mind recently. Some context may be useful for understanding. The past few times I have visited my parents, the conversation has been pretty rocky. Both my parents are empty nesters now that my sister and I have moved out of the house. Now that we are gone, I always had imagined that my parents would relinquish some of the authoritarian tone that they used to use when raising me and my sister. However, in many ways, that has not happened, especially for my dad. I also think my dad, working as a salesman for 40 years, where expressing emotions was discouraged, has not helped the situation. Hmm. The past weekend, my family went to see a family therapist. Now, there's another word, therapy, from the Greek therapuo, to heal. Uh, because in my dad's words, our family doesn't seem very cohesive, and he doesn't feel like he could lead the discussion. So now, I just insert from Fisk here. So father acknowledging needs help 
Oh, wow. Okay. Going on. Although the therapy session seemed to be to help somewhat, my sister and I noticed right away that this therapist was not a Christian. Oh, new spin. Uh, so we decided as a family that this would be a one-time visit. My question is whether or not Christians should even be relying on psychotherapy, different than therapy, right? And, and different than psychology. Okay. But we'll get there. Uh, it seems to me that therapy, let's see again, a different thing is a crutch rather than a solution. Since many of these problems that my family is having could be avoided if we could just open, be open and honest with each other, uh, say what you mean, mean what you say, even though my parents may intellectually know that being open and honest about our emotions is the answer. I don't think they were raised by their parents in that manner. 100%. Furthermore, I'm highly yeah. skeptical about many of the founders of psychotherapy and today's practitioners not even being Christianed. Uh, again, sincerely, an internet raised millennial and just my two cents to start with regard to the whole thing. Habits take time. Yeah. I, let me address something that I, I find coming up. It, it, it comes up so frequently just in the most basic form of social media posting where people are going to therapy or they're on psychotropic medication or lots of things. And obviously someone or probably also themselves feels in some measure guilty about it. And therefore they say, you know, you can love Jesus and go to therapy too. And the issue there and the reason that that concern and, and what the listener asked in the last paragraph particularly is a valid concern and, and worth discussion. And the reason really that we're handling this question is because psychotherapy does not operate in a sphere independent of the things about which Christianity speaks, particularly concerning man and how he's composed and what's wrong with him. And therefore, if you want to have any place for it, you're going to have to deal with things that touch on basic Christian doctrine about, for instance, the tendency to sin or the nature of being built to live within orders of creation. And when that order is attended to, life goes well, or at least better. And when that order is ignored or denied or called evil, then life goes worse. So you can't really talk about human sukai, right? Souls. You, you can't talk about human psychos without talking about Christian teaching. So the question is valid. And the, I want to say that up front because I think a lot of people want to concede this whole realm of life to the various ways that psychotherapy as well as attendant disciplines such as psychotropic medication, which, which really kind of dominates psychotherapy at this point. And we can talk about that, but we, we can't really stay away from these things and they can't operate independently on their own. It may very well be that you can have a non-Christian auto mechanic and that's fine and that's great because Christianity has little to nothing to say about the functioning of your minivan. That's different when we're talking about human beings because Christianity has everything to say about human beings. So that's why we, we really have to talk about this and, and discussing it is, I think, eminently worthwhile. Pastor Fisk has 
not only more experience, but I think also has thought more about this. So I, I don't want to occupy all the time, but I wanted to say that up front. I think you appreciate that. And uh, you said stuff that I would say. I'm just going to define a couple of terms for the world here because I know there's plenty of confusion about them. The word therapy, again, I mentioned healing, right? It's from Greek. It's an old concept. The idea is that by some manner of action, we shall bring about a restoration of what was, a comfort even to the wound, right? Mm -hmm. So therapy can be about, you do go to therapy if you hurt your knee, right? But therapy on the soul level, the psycho level, tends to mean in the direction of counseling. Okay. So they're not the same word, but people tend to use them a bit interchangeably. And I would just kind of remove therapy from the the technical terminology of our discussion. But but counseling is a bit technical, right? So this is when you're going to go and you're going to sit with somebody else alone or with your partner, because that person will tell you he can't fix you fighting with someone else if that person ain't there. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and so you'll go alone or with someone else, and that person will act as a judge and mediator between you and yourself or between you and that other person. And this will be as valuable as that person is, right? Whoever that person is, whatever they believe, they will be precisely that valuable to you as a paid friend, kind of like a paid yeah. uncle, really, yeah. right? Yeah. Not a bad thing necessarily. Okay. I'm not against this per se. Found the world of its industry to be filled with thieves, liars, and you know, idiots, actually. Uh, people who just don't know. They think they know. They don't know. Because what do they know? They know psychology. There's this word. Psychology, right? So you mentioned soul. I love it. <laughs> and I had never put together that we're all psychos. <laughs> I just I just realized that, you know, all people who go to psychology are going to a man who's going to tell them words about their psychoness. <laughs> and he's talking about their soul while he doesn't believe in God, generally. All his right. answers will involve yeah. there being no deity whatsoever involved in the problem. It's purely a habitual or chemical issue. And if it's a chemical issue, you'll be sent on from your psychologist, unless he's gone to school to get the extra money, to the psychiatrist, where now we'll begin the more pharmaceutical solutions to, yeah. to your problem. And not limited to pharmacy because electricity does things in your brain. They find. And so, you know, it, it goes further. We don't have to go into all of that. But psychotherapy, now you're looking at a different level of education. You're looking at a guy who can write prescriptions. It's probably the best thing is to know your psychotherapist can write prescriptions, you know, like an RN, but way more than an RN. And your psychologist, you know, maybe is a, a lawyer in education level, maybe. You know, your therapist, your counselor may or may not get that far, depending on if they have a, a doctor, you know, name or letters behind their name and all this. So, you mentioned the connection between shame and why this, therefore, as a question comes up in churches a lot. And you also mentioned how we kind of have punted it a little bit. And I, and I would suggest that's tied to our adoption of this idea that there are problems with your soul that are not with your soul, right? They're, they're actually with just your body, right? Or, or your parents, right? They're not your soul. And psychology as a field, as a mythology, and this is my primary point, that psychotherapy, psychology, all of it amounts to a mythology that, like all mythologies, can overlap the world you see and experience on many vectors. So it's not necessarily harmful to you. Homer doesn't necessarily turn you into a bad man, you know, um, but it fails in the end to achieve what it claims to be, yeah. right? which is a solution to all the problems. And instead, what psychology tends to be is where it's most useful if you want to be a cynic, <laughs> uh, is that it is a great catalog of all the problems we cannot fix with the human soul, 
especially those we are exacerbating with modern life. We tend to call those disorders. Disorders are things that don't seem to have existed before modern life. I find that fascinating since I can diagnose myself with one and I have been diagnosed with another. And so all of this becomes like, so what does a, what does a Christian do when he has a disorder? <laughs> and his desire is, as you pointed out so well, to live in the natural order as a redeemed sinner, right? And so, so I'll just, I'll, I'll start there and say one more thing that'll yeah. I hopefully confuse everybody. But you know, the day I repented of my depression, it changed a lot of things. It didn't make me feel better, but I stopped believing the word had any claim on me. And that did slowly feel much better. Yeah. So, right. Because I think one of the primary issues that we have when we're contrasting Christian teaching with what probably you're going to get, whether you're going to a counselor or a psychiatrist, whether they're trying to heal you through talking, which is the which is the origin of most versions of psychotherapy, whether they're Freudian or Jungian or what their orientation is, or pharmaceutical solutions, which have come to dominate partly because of the funding structure of the natural sciences. Whatever's going on there, the difference is going to be that you are either defined by your diagnosis or that your diagnosis or whatever, whether you want to attach that name to it or not, the emotions that you experience, the ways that you process life, whether those things are somehow definitive of you. And you want to yeah, think there's no of, question. They are they are definitive of you. The way that the the myth tells the story. I was yeah. told when I was seven, I was depressed and felt abandoned. I was told it. I just right. had to be. And the craziest thing of all is that my parents told me, "You feel abandoned. You should effectively do something about that." I mean, that's a that's a weird world to live in, man. Let me tell you. Yeah. Again, I'll, I'll answer those questions whenever anyone wants. But it is it is such a powerful story that you know as soon as you you hear someone say to you you have this fill in your blank identity and you adopt it you have now let them preach to you a gospel right and you can you can see here how this runs along the very same lines that the gospel of lgbtq runs amen you are companies yeah (laughs) (laughs) and we're talking about the pharmaceutical solutions that that is all literally true right because the issue here is that you will be defined by a way of understanding what is wrong with your life that doesn't involve sin necessarily. And then you will be defined by solutions that obviously don't involve Christ. This doesn't really mean that, you know, you couldn't have a problem that is a electrochemical problem inside of your body. We're not starting at the point where it's like, well, which medications do I get rid of right now? Because probably a lot of you are on them. And if you're not, most people in your churches are. Okay. So this is not an issue where like so many other things like COVID, anyone gets to kind of stand up and say, you know, thank God I have not, you know, ever been part of these things and I am pure. Because even where that's the case, where you know, you've never been to any of this, you've never taken any medications for anything except maybe antibiotics or something, which is its own problem, maybe sometimes. Even where that's the case, we're all involved in this. So we all have to step back and say, how did we get involved in this? And is this actually a solution to our problems? Because, and now I'm speaking in terms of experience, which I think is is helpful when we're talking about matters of wisdom. 
people get into these things and they never really have to get out unless they want to. Because like church, it provides a holistic identity and a set of ongoing solutions to your problems or purported solutions. This isn't really new, but you see it in lots of parts of human life where the actual solution, which is going to be found in repentance and faith, is not acknowledged. It's not even acknowledged. So whether you want to say, well, you know, my, my therapist is a Christian or the person that, that prescribed this medication to me as a Christian, I'm a Christian. That's wonderful. What part does your thinking about what the Bible says about who you are actually have in those solutions that were offered and accepted? That, that's the actual question. Because it's not like human beings will stop seeing problems in themselves and others. But you get this description throughout the prophets, the idea that for all this, for all their solutions, for all their running to and fro and seeking, in the case of Israel, for political solutions to their problems, for all this, their wound is not yet healed. So the issue isn't, are people wounded or have they sinned, right? Those, those are two different things. And sometimes people are wounded. They are sinned against. But the solution to those things you'll notice in, for instance, the law of Moses, which is a demonstration of, among other things, the will of God, is that both the things that are done to you and the things that you do are taken up into the system of cleansing and healing offered through the forgiveness of sins. So it's not like just because someone has given you another solution, you can therefore just ignore the ideas of repentance and faith and cleansing and new life that is offered through the basics of the Christian gospel as both proclaimed, but also I think particularly distributed in the physical means of the Lord's Supper. Because the Lord's Supper is the thing that ancient Christians are going to call medicine. When they talk about medicine, most often, they're talking about the Lord's Supper. And when we're trying to live a life that separates large parts of our lives from what's happening in the Lord's Supper, where both we are forgiven and incorporated, and that incorporation, that, that renewal is an incorporation into someone who is alive without the need for therapy. And his, mm -hmm. his, his wounds, his wounds are still there actually as marks of, of beautiful affliction. If you're not really thinking about that, then you're not really thinking about the kind of life that you have in Christ or that is on offer in Christ. So sometimes when I think about whole realms like psychotherapy or whatever, it's not just that there are issues with how they think about mankind to begin with, right? Freud thinks that women are all angry about being insufficiently men. Okay, you can, you can go, this is a family show. You can go look up what those details mean of what I just said. Dude might be onto something. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I'm living in the modern world and I'm watching, you know, as it seems uh, I got my comments. I think always. women are always unhappy trying to be men. Yes. In the various, yeah. And they've been sold it like it's the gospel. I don't think it's in their, I don't think it is in God's natural order that they are simply insufficiently men. That, that, that is what oh, no, Freud was positing. Yeah. Yeah. They're different and, and cool. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. But go, but go for it. The number, this, I'm, how to say this, and it's not disconnected from where that just went at all. 
this is this comment is based upon purely my experience, which okay. includes better than fifteen years as a pastor and better than thirty years as a as a patient of of psychology. Blah blah. I'm kind of amazed at how many Christian women who I have seen, counseled, spoken with, who have struggled with any kind of what we would diagnose as psychological issue. On some level, if I were to say to them as my first question, how much joy do you find in submission to your husband? They would not only look at me like I didn't make sense, they would consider me their enemy immediately. And that the result of, of that reality, which is the psychotherapy medication, drugging, of what I think often is just their own conscience at work against them, that they're, what are you depressing? It was one of the most important questions someone ever asked me. I'm depressed. What are you depressing? You're doing it to yourself, baby. What right, are you yeah. hiding? Yeah, like you depress a button, right? Yeah. So what are you pushing down, right? Yeah. What are you hiding, right? And I would suggest that for most women alive, it's probably that you don't want to submit to your man and you don't on some daily basis. And it really bothers you both and you both experience it, but you can't admit it to yourself and he won't tell you. And that guys, I'm going to throw it at you too. It's actually, you still probably haven't rejected your mother in favor of your father. Because your father never really, for many of you, led the home. And so you still, he still doesn't, right? And you've never actually like told your mom, like that was, there's words you can use, right? There's lots of words you could use that that's wrong though, right? Yeah. Like, go ahead. Yeah. And I think the, the origin of the question in the way that a family functions and does not seem cohesive, that's always helpful. The more, especially when you're talking about repentance, the more detail you can provide your, even just yourself when you think about your own sin. What do you remember? How did you go through this? What did you do next? When you're talking about family cohesion and, and then you're going to outsource the task, there's going to be some opening up because the, that in this case, it's, it sounds like a fifth person, right? Who's the, who's the paid friend. And I think that's probably one way to think about why have these things grown, right? We're both lonelier and paying for things more and more and more that we used to get for free from something like a friend, which is the ability to have somebody who's not inside that exact situation say, yeah, that was crazy, or <laughs> he's totally <laughs> off base, or you're totally off base, or whatever, yeah. they, right? And so now you have to pay for this. The fifth person, yeah, is obviously going to provide that same thing that a friend would do. The question is, is that actually going to fix it? And to me, sometimes, I mean, so I'll, I'll say this from my own industry or my own vocation, is that we attempt the same thing just with teaching Christian doctrine that we're now often trying with repentance and faith, things even more basic than how much doctrine do you know? And that is outsourcing to somebody a person that that really is being paid to replace the family. So the fa the father doesn't have to teach the Christian doctrine because the pastor will do it. We don't have to talk to each other about what is actually going on because the therapist will pay the therapist to do that. Or then the psychiatrist will provide us with the chemical solutions to these problems. And then we'll, we'll, we'll go talk to him about adjusting dosages and various things. 
the issue here is that when you're dealing with things inside and between human beings, you can't ever just talk about it as a purely horizontal phenomenon. And that is what usually various sciences and pseudosciences try to do. They ignore both what has been created and then also how that has been redeemed. So for instance, with family cohesion, <laughs> Adam is lacking in family cohesion. What What's the solution? I mean, I guess Adam and Eve could go talk to a counselor eventually, <laughs> theoretically, about what happened all those years ago at the beginning of their marriage. But that doesn't prevent Adam from being blamed because he has been made to be the head of that family. And he can either shirk that or not. And I think really crucially, you can feel any kind of way that you want to about that. The thing that is probably least useful for actually doing anything about life is thinking that your emotions and how you felt at the time govern reality. That's not true for men or for women. So whatever your emotional complexion is or temperament or makeup is based on however your parents raised you or whatever you did since then, or the people that you hang out with, or you got used to talking about yourself all the time, or you never talk about yourself or whatever the issue is, that doesn't govern reality, right? So if your you know, father is emotionally distant or he's too close or whatever, that doesn't change the fact that he still has to lead the family. Also in matters of familial repentance, like we have all been living totally apart from each other. Therefore, we have no cohesion. Here's how we're going to change that. Or he doesn't have to say that to everybody if that's not the way that your family operates. He can just go about changing some of the, like you said earlier, Pastor Fisk, habits, because habits are especially powerful. In managing my own family, I find the habit of inculcating table manners has knock-on effects in everything else that my children do. And therefore, I invest heavily in that, inculcating that particular habit. So we're dealing with something where even if all of this stuff were fine, or they shared all of your presuppositions, or you were getting some Christian form of these things, like the biblical counseling movement, or something like that, it still doesn't really fix the fact that your feelings about your father need to be dealt with with your father, not with the person that you paid, whether he's reverend, blah, 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 whatever, or not. That doesn't fix it. And even if you came to me and you confessed this sin about our family lacks cohesion and then fill in the blank, what troubles me particularly is, and then you fill in the blank. After pr pronouncing the absolution, I'm going to say, well, why don't you go talk to your dad? Right? Or why don't you call your sister more often? A lot, a lot of a lot of these solutions, and I find even proposed by Christians and even Christian ministers, are evasions. And I understand why why people want evasions because it's easier that way. But evasion is not medicine. No, it's not. And 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 if you think about the contrast between evasion and the way that Christ behaves. I would not say that Christ is always <laughs> brutally straightforward, but I would say that he is definitely non-evasive. Amen to that. 
right? So it's not that he's putting everything in the most. I I mean I I I object I I I generally very much object to the lack of manners or the 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 celebration of brutality in speech just for this reason that that is a tactic for wartime brutality is fitting for wartime under conditions of sin okay that that's the way it has to be when you have to take someone else's life even in a just cause brutality is fitting brutality and just spewing whatever is on your mind is not fitting for a situation and a relationship that is not in a state of war. So the solution to all of this is not, I'm just going to be honest, right? Or, you know, let's get rid of the filter here or something that you think is like, you know, would would actually solve the problem. You You still, for instance, think about Paul's advice to Timothy. The older men Timothy's talking to, preaching to in that particular case, they're probably wrong about some things. <laughs> in fact, you can kind of guess some of the things that they're wrong about based on what Paul says earlier. Like they're very given to anger. Okay. So they should lift up holy hands in prayer and not in anger. Great. Right. He still can't talk to them like they are beneath him or like they are his enemies. So there are ways that scripture gives you for figuring out how to handle these situations many of which honestly don't have to do with total transparency or entire honesty. You don't have to say everything that is going on. Like, think about the reconciliation between Esau and Jacob. Okay. And I'm thinking about this because I'm teaching Malachi to my people right now. And, you know, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And I made the point, if you look at the Bible, Esau in a horizontal way or an everyday way is a much better human being, right? First, they feel bad for him. And then at the reconciliation, he's a, yeah, he's a, it, so right. Grace has nothing to do with deserving. Esau is yeah. just seems like a better guy, right? I mean, even, even at the point of reconciliation, Jacob is putting his least valuable people out front yep. in case there's an attack yep. so that the one he actually loves is at the back and she doesn't get hurt. Okay. Esau doesn't say, you know, uh, well, before, you know, before I eat with you or give you anything or let you come into the land, I'm just going to hash this all out with you. You know, let, let's just be clear about what you did to me, <laughs> right? Maybe that's not valuable. Maybe it's not. But what is happening in the reconciliation between Esau and Jacob is that what is naturally created, which should be the case in which the family seeks to cultivate, which... Rebecca was very much working against, along with Jacob, is the harmony that should exist in that family. And Esau is making that possible by being forgiving and not saying everything that might, you know, come into his head. I really want to run off on the the, the train of Rebecca's uh, virtue and vice, but <laughs> but I'll just acknowledge that it was a complex situation, like yeah. all situations. I, yeah, this is very much right. what we've been talking about here. Right. And so we're going to come back to the soul and your life experience as a soul and just know from the start then that this is a complex reality. You right. are yourself a complex. That's maybe one way to think about it. Your <laughs> right, mind yeah. operates right. in, a, in a complex. It can be orderly. It can be disorderly. It can be disorderly with its hyper attention to order. But what I want to suggest to you 
is that it is not, you've already said, Dr. Koontz, uh, it is not strictly a matter of pharmaceutical chemical realities. There is a God and a creation and an unseen world that is very much inactive with your, your mind, with your heart, and the soul that is tied to them both. And that this does then involve your brain and your stomach quite a bit, in fact. So it is not merely a matter of what you dose from them breaking down whatever they make to make, you know, Wellbutrin or whatever. I, who knows where they got that stuff. Um, but, but also, you know, what are you eating? You know, what, what are you drinking? Uh, how much? And, and uh, what are you breathing? Where do you breathe? Uh, do you see trees ever touch them, get near grass? You know, there's lots of other things that have an impact on your, your body that then have an impact on your soul. And so in our age of really uh, fifth generation wartime against the soul with all the nations of the world allied with the beast to come at you with a talking image in your own bedroom to tell you, believe us, not him. I mean, it's, it's, it's time to, again, see it's, it's complex enough that you're not going to fix it, but Jesus is calling you out of it. And it means his story is bigger than all of it. And I'm just going to say after several years of intentionally indoctrinating my daily thought process with Psalms and Proverbs to the level of many people think I actually am insane. It's been so beneficial to changing the filter by which I now manage my person, which brings me to your other comment, Dr. Kuntz, about uh, you know, total transparency is maybe not the best option, you know, brutality, uh, is, is a cool sounding word, the, <laughs> the uh, total transparency is letting your temptations run wild is what it's doing. Yeah. Uh, total honesty is not what the eighth commandment's about. Right. It's about truth. And just cause you feel really strongly about this thing being true in this way, the complex reality that is reality means most people listening to you have very different takes on it. <laughs> and yes. and so having your own filter that begins to a see there are other filters at play learn to speak what they can hear and then b when you speak the psalms and proverbs everybody can hear you that is gold that's gold buy some onward a lot of the issues also that we're talking about like you said are matters where and the example you gave was submission and the way that that is built into women and then aligns with their nature where it's attended to and then immiserates their nature where it's not attended to. There are so many other examples of that. And a lot of the things that we are prescribed, whether they're pharmaceuticals or duties of self-care or whatever the current jargon is, and the jargon will change, which is something sort of sad about all of this is that man's estimation apart from God of what's wrong with man varies so incredibly widely from time to time. It becomes pitiable when you look back at a different system because you can look at, you know, pop psychology from the 1950s and it is completely obsessed with Freudianism. And then in the 1960s, Jung becomes much more important. Jung is certainly more intellectually interesting in the way that he says what is wrong with man and how to heal it. But that also peters out. Now, there are people devoted to both those thinkers to this day or to some synthesis between them or something. 
but it's definitely not dominant in a pharmaceutical dominated paradigm of what's wrong with people so that you go to your diagnostic and statistical manual in order to find out what precisely is wrong. Those definitions also, as people are very familiar with, particularly with sexuality, those change radically over time. And as they change radically, the problem is that doesn't necessarily diagnose that human beings are not meant to X or Y or Z condition of life that is somehow normal and or normative today. So if it's normal and normative to wonder what your gender is, and here are pharmaceuticals that can help you figure that out or help you toward an inclination, which will, and this is, you know, this is not something to sniff at that will be much more profitable to other people than if you didn't wonder what your gender is, then that's going to be given to you as a solution. And you will have to find out by absolutely the most bitter form of experience that it was totally wrong, which is the story that every detransitioner gives is they cared a lot about me. There was a lot of care. I was taught how to provide self-care and the self-care also involved in this case, pharmaceuticals and in, and in many other cases, also surgery. And then I went through it all and then I realized it was a mistake because to some extent my brain chemistry changed as I entered my early 20s and then none of these people cared about me. And of course I was less profitable to them because I didn't need to maintain this kind of drug regimen in order to continue chasing the goal of being a different sex than what I am, right? I can hormonally let what I was created to be express itself. And that's actually better. And I feel better. And I am better when I attend to those things. So if you're, if you're confused about how natural order interacts with life, one way that you can become a little clearer about these things is to listen to people. Pastor Fist just did this with his own life. You can also do this with gender, with detransitioners. You can do this with lots of things. Listen to somebody say, I, I tried to figure out what the order actually was, and then I behaved accordingly rather than behaving according to usually what we're taught to do today is to behave according to my emotions. Mm -hmm. That's right. That's right. They give into the flesh, follow the carnal animal. You must, you must be the animal that you are. You got to be the carnal man that you are. You're not going to stop. There's a big Lutheran problem. We think if we dogmatize talking about it, we'll stop being it. It's filthy, stupid. Um, and actually gets to what I want to pull out of what you were saying. I think one of the most important dogmatic points demonstrated in this discussion about sin is something that we declare just loudly, loudly in our dogmatics, which is that reason is fallen. Reason is fallen. Equal sign is 80-20. Okay. Like that, we don't believe that in our age, whether man ever is willing to believe that is one thing, but, but yeah. the age of reason <laughs> is the one we've embarked on. And what you see happening in psychology words about psychot psychoticness, you know, souls without God souls who trust in reason is that they are imminently unreasonable. They have no logic really to them. They are in fact worshiping their belly for everything it's worth, teaching you to do likewise, making a profit on the side. Who cares about you? And that isn't just tr transitioners. I mean, this is right. the history of ADHD. This is the history of oppression, anxiety, all, all, all these different things. 
uh, serotonin reuptake inhibitors and the recent research into those, you know, all of this, such a lie. And the worst of it, Dr. Coons, the worst of it is now, you know what I won't do? You know what I won't do? I won't go see a psychologist. And you know what? That's probably stupid of me. Because at 45, after as much as I've done on my own, I bet you if I researched and went to a really good one, I could pay a guy who knows more than me to kind of resolve a couple long-term questions I've had since I've done all the work and I got the questions on a piece of paper, right? Maybe he can see a, a window or something. Yeah. But, but like, like it's the same issue with like, you know what I also won't do right now just because randomly, I'm not going to a doctor. Are you kidding me? Especially they're masking up in Illinois, baby. And like, so what all of this has done is, is it made the actual medicine, if it were there, less trustworthy, you got kids who maybe could benefit from something somewhere. And how would we ever know? How would we ever know? We have no real records we can trust. We have a complete disaster of an FDA overseeing the whole thing from, from your corn and your potatoes to the Ritalin. Oh my goodness, people, you know, I joined the kingdom. It's just so much more hopeful over here. (laughs) There is. And I and I wanted to mention this in a connection with the with the original question before I before I forget about it is that what I, what I'm going to describe is I think a fairly common emotional makeup that I see throughout confessional Lutherans and it, it doesn't really seem I mean there are theological accounts for it but it seems to me to be a natural phenomenon because you don't find it in every group. But the reason I want to mention it is because I see it so commonly, particularly in our clergy, which is the group that I probably know best, but also in the larger group of of laity, all the Christians, is that there it's is... Hard not, I'm going to interrupt you, it's hard not to get to know those who uh, who mark your steps. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and, and that emotional makeup involves what seems to me a, a complete lack of fluency with human emotion. That doesn't mean the absence of human emotion, because what I find most often is that the the actual emotion is so suppressed by social custom that in public you you always have to act a certain version of happy. Um, and this this is called in in other groups that are probably somewhat similar, evangelical nice or Mormon nice. We usually phrase it as Minnesota nice instead of Lutheran nice. And if it's just a matter of politeness fine but what you can see is that it involves the very severe governance of emotion and you have to react nicely to everything that is said to you so i'm gonna go further it involves lying it involves lying yeah it does it does but what it also means is that people can say whatever they want you can't say whatever you want and what that means is that usually the person who is most actually offensive or weird gets to dominate the group the rudest right and that obviously has effects on who then it matters in the group and who gets to have power in the group so the person who is absolutely least where let's begin to talk about scriptural terms his tongue is actually least governed whether he's a clergyman or not his tongue is least governed he actually gets to be in charge because he says things that other people are thinking and gives vent to them and the idea that they're that those emotions are being vented either by that one person or by the group as that one person speaks is important because scripturally emotions you'll find are are relatively 
rarely described. You can see them in stories, but they're relatively rarely described. Or you can imagine them in stories. How does the ruler of the synagogue feel? But they're usually not actually narrated. And that that means that emotion actually in this group, this group that I'm talking about, begins to take on a tremendous importance that it doesn't have in the Bible. And I'm saying this before any therapist told me my emotions matter or that I should attend to all of them or I should be totally transparent or any of the other issues with emotion that we've talked about already. That emotions have taken on this giant unspoken significance similar to a long-standing difficult situation in a family. Let's say every day we wake up and we think about the fact that we might lose the house or something like that, right? So emotion has in the group an importance it doesn't need to have, and nobody's fluent in it except maybe some of the worst people. And now away we go. And that is a recipe for disaster for families, for churches, for any group, because it means that emotion is now governing everybody without anybody having the capacity to talk about it. It would be like your country is governed by people who don't speak the language that you speak and you can't understand what they're saying. That's exactly what's going on on like lots and lots of levels. Yeah. Um, on one of my other shows, Stop the White Noise that Meredith and I do on Saturday mornings, uh, we do quite a bit about soul conversation kind of stuff and psychology and something that we've been on for a couple months now. And then a friend of mine here locally found this on his own and brought it. So it kind of you know, what's the, there's a fallacy where, you know, you hear something recently and so it's more true, but, but it, it is exactly what you're talking about. Brene Brown, uh, as an author, as a Christian, as a psychologist, um, has written a couple of books. Daring Greatly is probably her, her best known. If you want some man in the arena kind of stuff, it's a nice inspirational little read can really uh, detail a few things about the way American culture may in fact be impacting how you feel. But the thing that she found more in the other resource, the book, I can't think of the name right now, is one in which through questioning a wide swath of people that struggle with shame issues, vulnerability issues, depression issues, uh, what she discovered is that a large percentage of the people only have three to four negative emotions that they actually ever feel. And you can name them as like sadness anger and fear. I think that's it. And the thing is, there's like 37. As a person who kind of went, there's 37? And then went, wow, I only do know three. <laughs> that knowledge was pretty potent, man. Yeah. And I'm still trying to figure out you know, what it means, but there's different kinds of sadness. Some of them aren't so bad. <laughs> what a thought. And again, so here, where am I going with this? The gaining fluency in emotion then, right, is essential for the pastoral task if you intend to get better at it. I'm not saying you have to have it to be there. You're probably already there, some of you, right? Okay, get better at it, right? Understand there's more. And then understand that why aren't they listening to your sermons? Because you don't talk to their emotions. That's why. You're emotional. They're scared of you because you're so emotional. But you don't understand their emotions, right? So that task for the office is, is just epicentral. And then if you're not in the office... If you are simply, you know, in this battle as we're talking about it, it, it does have to do with recognizing that your own 
generational inheritance as both both pastors and non-pastors you know your parents their parents their parents also probably only speak in three emotions or six emotions or, or, or whatever right and that is in fact sin which doesn't mean they're all going to hell but it is probably unrepentant idolatrous and perhaps hardening the family <laughs> while you all still wonder why your faith is getting cast to the wind right and so where where in all of this does that hit you? I tried to speak in really broad terms so that it could just kind of hit where it hits, where it's been in my house with my wife who converted me to believing that pastors should be men only, who from the start has been the definition of submission. It meant that on a trip to Alaska, she repented of never understanding what submission meant to me. And I repented of never understanding what headship meant to her. And I'll probably do it again in the future <laughs> as I learn, but like there's something really powerful there again in our order and with each other. And then that as family isn't just a matter of see me and my wife or me and my seven that are here, but then it's how we are family with those who are in the building where we feast upon Christ and where our repentance is then going to show itself in our simple trust. Right, which then is what we get to express now. Instead of being afraid and ashamed, we may trust and share and know that evil will come, good will come. But the words of our God, right, the the logos uh, of Biblios, bibliology, <laughs> it's it's a it's another thing altogether. It's another level. It's a kingdom. And then where this has put me as a pastor that I want to speak to, you know, your comment about the the rudest person ruling, yeah. And I kind of figured that out a while back. And then I realized that along with that diagnosis of our synodical polity, nothing really actually happens in the meetings where we're supposed to be voting for things to happen. Like it's all decided long before you get to that spot. And you've drawn the battle lines if you're going to battle, right? And if you have, you're not going to battle, you all agree. And you're just kind of, you're, you're putting a stamp on this entire thing. And so in that world where then the work is being done generally behind the scenes by the person with the least scruples, then you must publicly call them out right? and, and distinguish between. So Jim and Bob got together, had a meeting last April where they decided what would happen at this meeting now. And I know about it because I have the email and I think that this is wrong and the congregation shouldn't tolerate this. Now, I'm not saying that is just, I just made that up, right? But like, but like, Really? No, really. If you want to fix it, LCMS, like we really. Your thoughts? The idea that the that the group is is governed by the rudest person. I, I I don't think that I don't think that necessarily entails secrecy because I'm also thinking about this in terms of families. That sometimes that process, and this has to do with not so much the way souls are are made. And then express themselves, but also with the way that manners do or don't govern those, because manners are changing. And so this idea of being publicly rude is more and more acceptable, right? You know, this is this is where your your 90-year-old farmer from nowheresville probably has better manners in public with other human beings than your corporate magnate of today. And, and he probably dresses better for church than your corporate magnate does for his board meeting. Those kinds of things will mean that the process that you described of like secrecy, for instance, I actually think that's declining because people have relatively less of something that's very much governed by manners, which is shame. 
So if they're relatively yeah. shameless, then they're just going to do it out in the open. So my secrecy comment then is because the secrecy really was the the parable that because I, I want to I agree, I agree yeah and I still think the solution is call it out. You got to talk about it frankly and publicly. Like like guy gets up in meeting and yells. Yeah, the pastor needs to say Bob. That was not holding rain of your tongue with love. <laughs> Pastor Bob. <laughs> yeah, because, right, right. Because, Amen. Well, because, yeah, right. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, you're good. Keep it. Amen yeah, because, <laughs> because I, I, I find that this is, you know, I mean, something about which people talk to me relatively frequently. I mean, I mean, talk like uh, emails, uh, phone, whatever. I meet them somewhere is like, what is the matter with our clergy? You know, and there's, <laughs> there's a lot, there's a lot to be said there. And, and the dominant psychological thing with our clergy is usually that they are anxious about their job and therefore they are they are hyper agreeable much less often but usually more consequentially they are shaped or 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 misshapen to be dominant through loudness or assertion and this is this goes all the way back to to kind of my my skepticism about the power of assertion. So if Millet says something that goes on TV or or Musk, you you know, uses enough F-bombs to indicate because F-bombs are like an indication of sincerity for his, you know, in this time, right? People casually swear in a way that they don't care about at all. And they're partly doing it to indicate, like, I really mean we gotta, this. We got to do a whole show on the F-bomb because I think it's the most fluid and fascinating etymological word ever <laughs> developed. It's so, it's a verb, it's a noun, it's an adjective. It does everything. It's really interesting. So, anyway. But, uh, but you know, so that's whatever. So they, they really mean it. So they're swearing at you, you know. That the function of that, where it exists in the clergy is in order to stop you from the use and i and i will defend reason in this way because it, it's fallen but it's real and it's fallen but it's still a gift like a lot of other human powers is that it prevents reason from being able to exist because when you get severe assertion which you get in a way that i find coming from a different emotional makeup a different culture I have heard people say to other grown men in meetings things that are shockingly personal and generally not even true. And I simply can't believe that it was said. And that's happened enough that, you know, I just, I've come to expect it actually. Yeah. But yeah. why I would mean, you, you, why, why would you say something like, like, why, why would you try to reduce another grown man in that way? You're doing it for the sake of maintaining power. And that that is a rule that is a, that is a rule by sheer brutality, and the idea that somehow, you know that that actually wouldn't be permissible in a joint chiefs of staff meeting, but it's permissible in your stupid little church meeting, is insane, because it misunderstands not only the place of brutality in human life, but it also misunderstands the idea that you are not to lord it over as the Gentiles do. And that you are not, and this doesn't, this doesn't actually involve being nice. I'm not saying you have to like the guy. I'm saying, why don't you not destroy his life in front of other people's eyes? I've seen it enough. Why do, why are we doing that? So this seems to me to be a particular expression inside this group, which is why I bring it up of the incapacity to handle emotion, which both your thinking, your reason that all, I mean, reason has its own word in German, but 
all of these spiritual or or soul-like things go under this term of geist. So the idea that we would have a stiffness of geist and be and be incapable of expressing ourselves or not trying to verbally reduce each other to ashes. This is an expression of the the degeneration of our times, the the destructiveness, self-destructiveness even of our times. And the remedy to that isn't going to come pharmaceutically. Even if somehow the management of emotion becomes more possible pharmaceutically. The remedy for those problems in our families or our churches can't come pharmaceutically because the problem is not merely biochemical. It's also in the place that we give to biochemical reactions that we have to words people say. So if we're not going to repent on those levels where the problems actually exist, then we might we might be successful in masking them, but the wounds are not going to be healed and fresh wounds are definitely going to be made. It isn't okay. It does matter. Hardening is not invisible. Let's repent. Listening to a Grief History of Power, you know where to find us or you wouldn't be here. The Hebron Collegium is a gap year Bible school for men in Rockford, Illinois. Semi-monastic boot camp for Christian living. Cowards and slackers need not apply. HebronCollegium.com What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org. Subscribe. Become a patron. And join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. At 7,123 feet, you can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you. Natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this. At 7,123 feet in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, you can also find God's word preached purely and his sacraments given out for your salvation at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Located off US 160, just west of downtown Pagosa, Our Savior offers your children a wonderful place to learn of Christ and his wisdom week in and week out and offers you the medicine of immortality Sunday in and Sunday out. Our Savior Lutheran School provides a Christ-focused classical education that enriches the child's soul with the best that has been thought and said to the glory of God. Whether you visit while vacationing or hunting in the beauty of the area, or whether you would like to join a group of faithful Lutheran Christians, our Savior Pagosa Springs has what you're looking for. Divine service with Holy Communion is each Sunday at 9 a.m., and Bible class follows at 10.30. At more than a mile high, you will find Christ in all his glory in the midst of his people at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School, a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. Find out more at oslcpagosa.org. North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament. 
where the Lord's word is faithfully preached, and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional, liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith, in the beautiful inland northwest.